0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us too on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. As we think about where we are in this pandemic and, and the vaccines. Um, you know, we've moved from the science stage. Can the scientist figure this out? And the answer has been a resounding yes. Such extraordinary work done by many uh, people around the world. Now we're down to the supply chain, the manufacturing, the distribution, getting it into people's arms. Uh, and that is going to be a challenge in and of itself. Tell us kind of walk through that. We welcome Rich Fitzgerald. He's an executive at Allegheny County. He's located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Rich, thanks so much for joining us here. I understand that you received the or you participated in the Moderna phase three trial. Tell us a little bit about about that.
1: I did. You know, as county executive, we we, we obviously run the health department for for the second biggest county here in in Pennsylvania, uh, where Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is located in. And and back in the summer, um, our health department director, you know, kind of asked me if I wanted to be part of a trial, a vaccine trial. And I'm not a medical person, so I was very, very reluctant, (laughs) as as you could imagine. Uh, But she kind of convinced me. And I have a wife who's a pharmacist, so that kind of helped me a little bit, too. So I went through all the questionnaire. Do you have that? allergies do you have medical you know what kind of medication your age who you're on all that kind of stuff i ended up getting the first shot uh back in september early september um, and then four weeks later, you're scheduled for the second shot. Um, I didn't know. They don't tell you if you're getting the placebo or the vaccine, so you're in a blinded trial. Uh, but they did tell me before I got the second shot that I might get these certain symptoms, a little bit of a fever, a little bit of achiness, you might have a headache, et cetera. I ultimately, I did get the symptoms. They lasted about 12 hours. They were extremely mild. So I feel very fortunate. And then I find out, uh, I guess it was in November, that the Moderna trial, has turned out to be successful, and it was 97% or whatever the percentage was they have given. So I feel very fortunate at this point.
0: That's great news. I think one of the big issues, as I'm sure you're aware, is convincing people that the vaccine uh, is safe, uh, it's efficient, it works, um, and that maybe some people in the past – who were not supportive of vaccines, who were anti-vaxxers to use a term, Uh, hopefully we can get those folks uh, taking the vaccine. What are you doing in Allegheny County as it relates to that issue?
1: Well, we're we're trying to convince exactly what you're saying. There there is a cer- certain segment of uh, society that that I call them anti-vaxxers w- w- for any vaccine. But what we're trying to do is use what I'll call influencers. So in certain communities, uh, the people that they're going to listen to. They might not necessarily listen to myself as county executive or the mayor or some CEO of a company, but maybe they'll listen to, to the minister of their church or maybe they'll listen to you know one of the sports stars of the of the of the local uh, local team. You know that type of thing. A teacher that's uh, you know very well respected so we're trying to use people in in the community who are uh, again I'll call them influencers who can convince people that this is for your own good this is the risk of not getting the vaccine far far outweighs the risk that you might get what a a little bit of a reaction with the vaccine
0: so in your county in Allegheny County includes Pittsburgh um, Talk to us about the deployment of the vaccine. What do you know about uh, your area, your county?
1: Well, I will tell you right now, we're, we're frustrated because, um, and I was glad to see yesterday uh, President Elect Biden come out and say uh, that uh, being critical of the, of the uh, current administration to say he would invoke the Defense Production Act, uh, because I am not happy that right now it seems much more slowly being administered that, that we need to do. If we're going to get on the other side of this virus and get our economy opened up and get people healthy again and allow our seniors to visit their grandchildren we have got to get this vaccine distributed quickly so if we're talking what we've seen over the last two weeks a million vaccines a week it's going to take seven
0: years to vaccinate this country that is unacceptable what do you under what is your understanding of how the distribution will in fact take place does it come from the federal government do you get an allocation from the manufacturer how is it actually going to work
1: we actually don't know. And I actually talked
0: to the governor. It's
1: supposed to go through the states. And I talked to the governor earlier today. Governor Wolf's been tremendous, and he's trying to get as much vaccine as he, as he can for, to distribute here in Pennsylvania. Um, some of it is being going directly from the manufacturer to the large health care facilities to do the frontline workers. And that certainly makes sense. Those are the folks that are exposed every day to patients, and, and they do need to be protected. The other uh, route, if you will, is is going through the big pharmaceutical. Companies to the nursing homes, the congregate care facilities, uh, and I understand CVS and Walgreens and a couple of the big ones uh, are, are doing that directly. And then some of it's going to the state. Departments of health directly, so then they will distribute it to counties like mine, Allegheny, and all the other counties and all the other municipalities here uh, in the state but it is it 's not very clear right now what the federal government is doing, and again, I think it needs to be ramped up it needs to be really uh, you know it 's got to be priority number one, almost like we 've done in in wars you know you think about back to World War two when you know factories were turned into you know for tanks and jeeps and planes. And uh, we need to do the same thing. We are at war with a virus and we need to put all of our resources into, into winning that war and defeating
0: this virus. So, Rich, about 30 seconds uh, before the break, what is your do you have an understanding as to when you may begin to receive some vaccines?
1: We have received very few, and, and I will tell you, we've received like a 1,000 doses, which was really for our frontline workers. Uh, we run a jail, we run some nursing homes, we run some uh, medical examiners and and, and and social workers that are out dealing with the homeless, dealing with people uh, with COVID. So those folks that are in our employ, we were able to, to distribute the first shots uh, in within the last week. But that is woefully inadequate for all of the first responders we have in our municipalities, uh, Throughout yep. the throughout the community, MedExpress, dental offices, doctor's yep. offices, etc.
0: You know, you got me thinking here as, as we think about getting the vaccine into people's arms, we think about back to March and April and May when there was a scramble across the country for PPE and what we saw because there was no federal control or federal policy, um, we saw states bidding against each other for masks and for other PPE. Is it? Are we seeing something similar here as it relates to trying to get access to these vaccines?
1: I, I certainly hope not. It, it, it's unclear, again, how the distribution uh, channels and, and the numbers are, are going. Um, again, I'm glad to hear that, that President-elect Biden has talked about instituting the Defense Production Act as soon as he gets into office in a couple of weeks. And that's what's needed. I mean, there, there should be massive uh, manufacture and production of this and then massive distribution. Because until we get uh, people vaccinated, you know, what they call community herd, you know, herd community immunity, we're not going to see our economy open up. People are not going to have confidence. They're not going to visit their family members. And, and it just needs to be priority number one.
0: So, Rich, give us a sense of how the pandemic kind of rolled through uh, Allegheny County. Uh, just give us a sense of kind of how you guys have been dealing with it.
1: We actually did very well with it early on, uh, through through March, April, those early months. Um, our numbers were much, much lower than than other places, uh, similar sized urban urban areas around the country. Uh, but then in late October. Um, you know, we, we we really started to backslide, and really over the last couple months, it has been uh, just uh, almost a, a spike that, that we've never seen. Um, we're going to have as many deaths, almost 500 deaths in the month of December, as we had through the first nine months um, from, from
0: March. How are the hospitals holding up there? Because one of the things we saw here, certainly in the greater metro New York area, uh, and then in other places around the country in the second wave was the hospitals just get overwhelmed, and that's really when the problems start to occur.
1: Yeah, they haven't been overwhelmed yet, but we are, we're we're reaching capacity, and that, that's another concern. Um, again, over the last six weeks or so, we have really seen a, a rise in not only hospitalizations, but ICU, acute care, and again, our, our fatality rate has gone up, and um, it is, you know, the, through the Thanksgiving, and we, we don't know exactly what's happened yet through the Christmas holidays, but our test numbers have been extremely high, and our hospitalizations are very, very concerning. And in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania, you, you know a little bit about it. We've got a very robust UPMC, AHN, a very robust health care uh, system, and even that is being taxed to the limit.
0: Talk about the economic impact that you've seen uh, in 2020 as a result from this pandemic. Give us some, some of the, what you're seeing there, because we've seen obviously some very, very high unemployment numbers nationally. Uh, jobs claims continue to be very weak. Um, yes, the stock market's going up, but that's not the economy.
1: No, and, and and certainly people that are in the hospitality industry have been impacted more than anybody. Our re- we had a booming, booming restaurant uh, and foodie uh, business, in 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 throughout and a lot of young people, a lot of vibrancy yep. here in the Pittsburgh area. And those folks have just been impacted. You know, the arts and cultural amenities of, of which Pittsburgh has tremendous, you know, the opera, the symphony, our sports teams, you know, music, et cetera, have just been decimated. Um, you know, things like construction and, and manufacturing and retail haven't been as, as affected as much, but it really has been the restaurants, the hotels, uh, the entertainment venue that have that just been disproportionately affected. They're the folks that really need uh, the, the 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 funding the, the, and the and the legislation that we need, you know, Congress to go ahead and uh, increase.
0: All right, Rich. Before we let you go, uh, are you a Steelers fan? I am indeed. And uh, how are you guys looking- feeling about it? Feeling pretty good.
1: Well, we're going to have a little uh, kind of week off this week, so uh, they're, okay. they're playing, but they're going to play a lot of the, the, the second-line players, and we're getting ready for that first playoff game uh, a week from this weekend. Um, and uh, we'll have a few fans in Hines Field, but uh, if you've been around, you know that we we, yep. we, we wave those terrible towels and we're excited. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be waving them at home uh, without you know a lot of people and trying right. to stay safe, but we'll be rooting for our Steelers, yes, indeed.
0: All right, Rich, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time, Rich Fitzgerald. He's an executive for Allegheny County. That includes uh, Pittsburgh in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Some uh, challenging times there like we're seeing uh, on a national basis, but again, looking for that light at the end of the tunnel. Well, as we think back to the beginning of this pandemic, one of the images that we have is cruise ships stranded at sea, ports not willing to take the people where there had been the virus on the ship. Eventually, over a long period of time, most of the passengers got off the ship, got home safely. But how about the people, the crew, the people on the ship that work on the ship? What was life like for them? How has it been for them? There's a fascinating story in the Bloomberg Business Week this week that goes to that issue. Let's bring in Joel Weber. He's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access line from Brooklyn. And Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from L.A. Joel, this is just a compelling story, a sad story. Talk to us about it.
2: Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's really a tragic one. Um, and the magazine has done, um, I think, a, just a seminal job of covering the cruise industries uh, 2020, which obviously um, was a really bad story, especially earlier in the year. Um, and, and those stories have largely centered on on passengers and the corporate experience. Uh, what happened when one of the ships in Australia uh, actually let its passengers off, and and the pandemic basically entered Australia? And, but Austin, I think, in this story, is a bookends all of it with this incredible human story um, that largely untold of what it was like to be a crew member on these ships and. You know, it's a tragic story because of the suicides that uh, basically mm-hmm. happened, and uh, I'll turn that over to Austin because it, has, it was just a, an incredible uh, reporting feat, um, but also I think was just an incredible uh, service because these are people who, you know, when passengers left, like you, like you said, Paul, um, the crew members actually were stranded and and um, spent weeks. Uh, uh, basically, still on lockdown. So, so Austin, um, take us inside your reporting. How did you How did you first learn about the topic, and and what did you know? Wh- where did it take you?
3: Yeah, in in many ways, these were sort of the forgotten workers of the COVID uh, nineteen cr- uh, crisis that hit the cruise industry. You had uh, Joel, as you noted, we we did a lot of reporting on a lot of the the passenger tragedies and and how the corporations have been hit. Um, But tens of thousands of workers, if not more, were stuck at sea long after passengers left. Uh, And what we had started exploring was just what the conditions were like aboard these ships. Uh, Crew members told us that they were uh, left with profound uncertainty around when they were going to get home. Their pay was eventually cut off when they were moved off duty because there was not really any work to do aboard these ships. They were confined to small cabins due to the pandemic. Um, And they, you know, anytime they were let outside, it was under very regimented circumstances, specific times when they could go get meals, when they could go have a cigarette break, when they could go get fresh air. And the only connection they had to the outside world was through a, a very mediocre Internet connection, which they could use to Facebook or WhatsApp with with family and friends. And so one of the things we wanted to do was was get beyond sort of the ancillary effects of the pandemic, which is there were already you know, thousands of infections and, uh, you know, around 100 or so deaths stemming from COVID-19. But we wanted to zero in on the consequences of people being confined to to this extended period of isolation, which in many cases resulted in depression, uh, isolation, anxiety, and unfortunately,
0: suicide, uh, as we sort of explore in the story. Austin, I was wondering, as I was reading the story, who was representing or who was supposed to be representing the interests of these workers? In, in many cases, there are unions advocating
3: on their behalf. Uh, but, but let's be clear, these are, are, are lower uh, paid workers, often from poor countries. Um, you know, w- there was often a lot of attention on passengers because they were the ones speaking to Western reporters. Uh, they were sharing photos and, uh, you know, videos from inside these cruise ships for the limited time they were on there you got to think that a lot of these passengers were were very affected for just being on these ships for maybe a couple weeks, whereas these crew members were aboard for months on end. And I think the ultimate issue was there wasn't a lot of people advocating on their behalf. Um, In certain instances on these ships, we did see protests break out to bring attention to their plight on uh, several Royal Caribbean ships. We saw a hunger strike. Uh, stage to for crew members to sort of put pressure on the company to get them home there was a protest on another royal Caribbean ship where they raised a banner that that essentially said, How many more suicides do you need uh, again a, a calling attention from the press to apply pressure and scrutiny of these cruise industry uh, players to sort of get them home but I think ultimately uh, to your point there there isn't a lot of people advocating uh, beyond uh, unions uh, and and sort of uh, press, but uh, there definitely needs to be more attention to this issue, uh, considering the conditions they faced uh, for for extended, prolonged uh, periods uh, at sea.
2: Austin, um, there's some some uh, p- you know really interesting characters in the story, including um, uh, Joseph Saller, is as, as really the 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 main um, story that that you use as the as the vehicle to 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 talk about the trend. Can you tell us about Um, about him and his family and and sort of where their fight um, to to basically have uh, his story um, uh, talked about more broadly currently stands? So Joseph was a cruise ship worker.
3: He'd been working for Carnival cruise ships since essentially January, and he really epitomizes what a lot of these crew members went through. Um, When the pandemic sort of exploded in March, uh, he was moved around to several ships. He was isolated in the cabin without a window for for a certain period of time. Um, You know, uh, friends of his said that, uh, you know, just to go outside, there would be specific times that might you know, you might only have an hour for breakfast, but it could take 45 minutes just to get a coffee because the the sort of uh, food service lines were so understaffed and and the ships were so crowded. Um, and unfortunately, after months at sea, um, he, he did end up taking his own life. Uh, crew members reported not having seen him for several days. He missed the daily required temperature checks, um, and crew members were sent to check on him, and unfortunately, he was found um, hanged to death, and what, what is a very tragic story that we outline in the story. And ultimately, we trace what it's actually like for the family to learn of this news and go through the process of repatriating their son's uh, deceased body and, and his remains and, and to go through the process of having him declared dead when he died in international waters to sort of figure out um, the sort of true story of what happened to their son when it's very difficult to, si- uh, to, to get information out of these cruise companies who are not often totally forthcoming about information for a variety of reasons. And so this story is both uh, the story of a lot of crew members getting home and dealing with mental health issues, but also zeroing in on on ones who suffered this ultimate tragedy of of suicide and and how the families have had to deal with with the consequences of of this uh, difficult repatriation.
0: Yeah. Hey, Austin, thank you so much for bringing this story to our attention. And of course, if you are someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is one 800 273 Five Five Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News on the line, uh, phone line from L.A. and Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access line from Brooklyn.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Well, during this pandemic, I think most of us have become, or we think we are, experts in buying stuff online and maybe a lot more stuff at different types of stuff than we did pre-pandemic. And the proof is in the pudding when you look outside anybody's door, there seems to be boxes piling up on a daily basis from all over. Let's get a sense of how this infrastructure, this e-commerce trend is playing out. We can do that with James Thompson. He's a partner at Buy Box Experts. Uh, Prior, he was former business head of Amazon Services. He joins us on the phone from Seattle. So James, Boy, what it just seems like this pandemic has pulled forward e-commerce trends and penetration rates by, you know, a couple, three years. What do you make of it?
4: I think it's exciting. Uh, It's very exciting. But it's also forcing brands and retailers to ask themselves the question around how are they going to adapt quickly to remain where customers want to buy products? One of the scary things that's happened for a lot of companies this year is they realized We're not actually set up to help customers if they want to buy online. So the questions around what does it take to make that transition and be in a position where you can support customers, whether they want to buy in-store or buy online, that's going to be the story of 2021. Companies making those adjustments, making those investments, and getting themselves ready for a world where enough consumers are interested in buying online that retailers and brands alike need to be ready.
0: Yeah, I'd be shocked if, if somebody, if a company I was invested in said they didn't have a digital strategy, I'd, I'd be a seller of that stock. I don't care what business they're in. What are you finding in terms of kind of the the headaches are for retailers here as so much of their business uh, has moved online? What are some of the things that they're finding problematic?
4: Well, at least a couple of big issues for, for most retailers. Number one, uh, companies are not set up to have real-time inventory information available mm-hmm. across just – not not just in-store, but across the country. If a customer places an order online and the inventory is sitting in a local store, does the retailer know that, or are they drawing inventory from an online fulfillment facility that has dedicated inventory just for the online customer? Uh, there, there was so much inventory tied up in physical stores over over the first few months of COVID – But you couldn't access it easily and so for all intents and purposes that's dead inventory so as as retailers start thinking about how do they make information about inventory available so that a customer can access it whether they're in store or whether they're buying online those types of questions are are big complicated questions that require software investments but also a change in philosophy for for a lot of retailers the e-commerce department is a separate company or a separate entity that has its own set of goals Uh, And and so you look at how much are we selling in the store versus how much are we selling online. From a customer's perspective, they don't really care how the accounting works. They just want to know that they can (laughs) go into a store. If it's not available in the store, no problem. We know exactly where it is, and we'll get it sent to you so you can have it. Uh, I think of stores or brands like Lego, a nice vertically integrated company, where it doesn't matter whether you're an online customer or a physical in-store customer. It's all one entity. You can buy in one channel, you can return in another. If you go into one channel and try to buy the product and it's not available, no problem. We can service it from uh, other channels. That kind of model is the model that I think most retailers are going to have to move towards fairly quickly so that they don't lose customers to retailers that have got this part figured out. And that's the The omni-channel
0: strategy, right, uh, James?
4: Yeah. It's it's more than just omni-channel. Omni-channel for some companies means hey, we sell in multiple channels. Well, a real omni-channel strategy says we sell in multiple channels, and we know how to move inventory back and forth between those channels. We know how to make it a fluid experience, so consumers don't have to worry about where the product's actually sitting today. It'll arrive to the consumer quickly, whether that's in the store or whether it's to their doorstep at their home, wherever they choose to have it shipped. So. That's issue number one. The the other big transition for for companies is going to be around how do you control last mile delivery? If you look at what's happened with the massive growth in demand for online orders in the past six, seven months, most retailers rely on the Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx to get those packages delivered to consumers. Well, those carriers haven't been able to keep up with the increase in demand, and so that's created a lot of delays both in Getting products into warehouses, but also getting products from warehouses delivered to consumers. When I look at what happened, for example, with with Costco, you know, back in November, the CEO was already saying to consumers, "Hey, UPS is uh, is slow in picking up our packages and getting it to consumers. You know, you need to go and download the UPS app to figure out when you're actually going to get the shipment." Well, that kind of situation was seen across many retailers where they relied on these carriers to get the packages to consumers but quite frankly it was a black box as to when it was actually going to be received by the consumer that's not a good experience for consumers Um, and and quite frankly consumers are going to go looking for retailers that can make a promise around when a product to be delivered and they can actually deliver on it and that's hard for most retailers to do when they don't control the, the last mile distribution themselves
0: Hey, James, I'm guessing, you know, that the share of e-commerce has just really accelerated here, the share shift. There's no going back, mm-hmm. is there?
4: Well, I think consumers still want to do shopping, but when it comes to buying, that is to say, when you know what it is you want to buy, yeah, going online, you get it done quickly, no problem. Consumers will return to malls when it's safe to do so, but they'll be doing that more to learn about products and to be buying things that they may not otherwise have initially planned to buy. And that's okay. That's great. Uh, For a brand or a retailer that has both a physical presence in malls as well as an online presence, they need to be prepared to operate physical stores where the same store sales may not necessarily continue to increase because consumers are going in to learn about products. But because of product availability issues, consumers may end up buying the products through the online portion of the business. So there's a role for both online and for inline but but it's going to be much more obvious within six to eight months when we're back we're back at you know physically visiting physical locations. Uh, It's going to become more apparent as to what the relative role is of each of these different types of channels.
0: James, you know, I was thinking back to before Christmas, probably late November, early December, you know, getting into the busy season. Outside the UPS store in my town, uh, the UPS guy was loading a truck, but it wasn't a brown UPS truck. It was an Avis truck. And he was telling me the reason he was doing that is because they ran out of UPS Mm -hmm. trucks. Are these companies, like, are they not able to keep up with this e commerce growth we're seeing nationally? every q4 each of these shipping companies will
4: often find additional trucks to be able to help with some of that uh, oh james
0: let me clear that up i I can say one more thing i asked him about that and he said yeah it usually we just have to go to these backup trucks during the holiday season but we've been doing it all year since march
4: Hmm. well uh, back to something i said the first part of our discussion these these companies postal service ups fedex You know, they haven't been able to grow as fast as as needed to support all the extra demand. And so they're growing as fast as they can, hiring people as fast as they can, grabbing trucks from here and there as fast as they can, but it's still nowhere near enough. And so as we start to think about what's going to happen in the next year, if all this incremental e-commerce demand is here to stay, these companies have to make a very important decision around, are they prepared to invest in growth to keep up with this? If you look at what's happening with Amazon – amazon made the decision over three years ago and said we can see the future and the future doesn't look good if we're relying on companies like ups and fedex and the postal service to grow with us and so companies like amazon have made significant investments themselves in last mile uh, capabilities target bought shipped earlier this year because they too see that they need to own some of the last mile logistics these are very important decisions and, and very forward looking in terms of If consumers are going to be making more and more purchases online and last mile logistics is being outsourced to somebody else, that's not a good situation if, in fact, e-commerce grows faster than these Mm. these logistics companies can support. So when you look at what's happened with Amazon in Q4, I've seen estimates that suggest that on prime orders that Amazon was shipping here in the U.S., they were actually handling upwards of 75% of all of the orders themselves, getting it from the Amazon Fulfillment Center's, onto trucks or planes that they control, onto trucks in your local city delivering it to your home. Seventy-five percent of orders. That's, that's capacity that UPS and uh, – well, not FedEx because Amazon doesn't work with FedEx, but <laughs> UPS and the Postal Service, you know that's capacity that they weren't being asked to support because Amazon said we can't bel- deliver on our prime promise if we rely on companies that aren't growing fast enough and don't have enough capacity to support us.
0: And, James, that brings up a good point. You know, when you go out on the highways and byways, I'm just shocked at the number of uh, Amazon trucks. You know, the big 18-wheelers all the way down to the, yep. the smaller vans for the last mile, literally. It seems like, you know, Amazon has become the nation's largest trucking company.
4: So they currently have over 30,000 transport trucks on the road that they own. And, wow. and when, you, when you drive up and down the East Coast Corridor and you look at, who's actually on the road, and you start counting Amazon trucks versus UPS trucks, you'll find that there's probably 10 to 12 times as many Amazon trucks yep. as you'll see UPS trucks. And that's Amazon saying, we're going to control moving products from warehouses to sorting facilities, and ultimately to consumers' homes. We can't rely on someone else to be able to to manage this. So Amazon's putting a lot of pressure not just on Uh, being able to buy trucks and so on, but also on labor that's going to support all the movement of these products. Amazon continues to rent more and more planes for their own prime air capabilities. Again, moving full cargo planes back and forth. Rather than saying, we're going to rely on cargo space that we can use on uh, passenger flights that pretty much have, well, dropped off significantly this year. We're we're not going to rely on that. We're just going to have our own planes that we can fill thank you very much, and fly between uh, big hubs, ensuring the product can move quickly. At the end of the day, Amazon's number one focus is how do we continue to grow while still delivering on this prime promise? Just because there's twice as many customers that want our products doesn't mean that we have to slow down on being able to get customers their packages quickly. Amazon has not been able to grow as quickly as they want, and so the prime promise has slipped a little bit from two days to three, four, five days, depending on where you were in q four. Uh, but, you know, Amazon going to keep making those investments because they can see that the other logistics companies are not going to be able to grow uh, in, in line with what Amazon needs.
0: Hey, James, we have about 30 seconds left. I'd love to get your thoughts on the grocery business for Amazon. Is there a future there?
4: The grocery business doesn't need to be profitable for Amazon. The grocery business is really about Amazon continuing to engage with consumers and keep Amazon top of mind. If you think of your wallet as having 10 different types of purchases you have to make each each week, at least a couple of those are grocery-related. Yep. And Amazon needs to continue to be relevant in, in all parts of your wallet.
0: And they certainly are judging by my credit card bill, James Thompson, partner Buy Box Experts, also a former business head of Amazon services. We appreciate your thoughts. He was joining us on the phone from Seattle, giving us the latest on Amazon. As uh, you you think about it, again, you go out on the highways and byways, and I'm just struck by how many uh, trucks we're seeing uh, from Amazon. Amazon Amazon-owned and branded trucks. They're just everywhere. So uh, they are taking matters into their own hands. Well, when we started getting the good news on the vaccine front, one of the numbers that kind of stuck in my head was, 20 million uh, people would get the vaccination, would get the vaccine by the end of 2020. It looks like we're going to be woefully short of that number. Let's dive into kind of what's uh, driving those issues. Drew Armstrong, he's a team leader for U.S. healthcare for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from Atlanta. So, Drew, there's a story on the terminal today. Uh, Vaccinations are running at about $200,000 a day, but that's far short of what Warp Speed promised. What's going on?
5: Yeah, so about 200,000 vaccinations being done um, a day. I, I think right now we're seeing the combined effects of some vaccines that have rather complex logistics to ship, uh, store, and then administer. Um, the early start to this that is still very focused on the group of frontline health providers and uh, folks who uh, reside in long-term and, and work in long-term care homes or nursing homes. And, you know, frankly, just uh, not quite the as, as fast as expected in the readiness that's needed to do the type of max vaccine, mass vaccination um, that uh, you know, is being called for here. I, I think, you know, right now the U.S. pace is somewhere around 200,000 uh, um, vaccinations a day you know, what you really should be seeing um, to reach 20 million is is close to a million a day um, on average since the approval or sorry, since the authorization of the Pfizer vaccine. And it's just nowhere close to that.
0: Drew, we uh, earlier in the show, we were speaking to the county executive for Allegheny County of Pennsylvania. That includes Pittsburgh. And he was extraordinarily frustrated on the lack of coordination and information from the federal government. What role, in theory, should the federal government be doing here to help with the distribution of these vaccines?
5: You know, I think that's a fantastically good question. Um, One of the things that we have seen is that uh, a number of holdups in uh, funding for the CDC that was meant to be dispersed to states to help them with exactly that. Um, Some of that has rolled out over the last two weeks, but the new stimulus bill um, and economic relief bill contains about eight billion dollars in CDC funding, um, the majority of which is going to go to the states, and probably not a uh, moment too late, uh, not a moment too soon. Um, You know, there's a real debate about what is the federal government's role here. Um, I think you will see the Biden administration probably try to take a much more active role in assisting states and communicating from above what's going on here. Um, President Trump earlier today and late last night, facing some of the news headlines crossing that this rollout was not going as fast as expected, basically said "It's the state's deal. Um, it's up to them to, to go and do this. He was very, very um, uh, clear about, about the fact that you know, we ship you the vaccines and you know go and get this done. Um, on your own, so um, I, I think that you know you clearly see a, a dispute about who should be leading this effort, and you know, the consequences of that are the are the number of people who are being vaccinated being rather low.
0: So, Drew, uh, President Biden yesterday, in a pandemic, uh, comments uh, said 100 million people will be vac- will get the vaccination in the first 100 days of his administration. As you talk to folks in the healthcare industry and in the supply chain. Is that doable?
5: I think it's a really good question. Right now um, you are seeing vaccination points are essentially in hospitals and um, increasingly in nursing homes and long-term care settings. Those are you know institutional settings where presumably it is relatively easy to line people up because they all work there uh, or live there and say okay we're going to do your vaccination. It's also a very small group. Where this is going to start getting bigger is when you bring on vaccinations at workplaces at pharmacies around the country, and you really, really expand that and use the tens of thousands of potential vaccination sites um, in the same way that we do with testing. I mean, remember, we can perform a huge volume of testing in this country right now using a distributed healthcare network. Um, it's very easy to imagine if you, you know, replace the vaccination infrastructure on top of the, what you see in the testing network, you can do certainly a lot of vaccination. But right now, it is just not happening. And it remains to be seen what
0: the next couple of weeks hold. Hey, Drew, maybe 30 seconds. Where is the bottleneck? Have we identified the bottleneck in this process?
5: You know, I think right now, no. And the bottleneck is probably about five different little bottlenecks. Okay. Uh, complaints By some states, they're not getting enough. Others, that they're not moving fast enough. It's a really, really complex um, uh, situation, which is probably part of the problem, that complexity.
0: Hey Drew, thanks so much uh, again for your reporting. We appreciate it. Drew Armstrong, team leader for US Healthcare uh, at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me
6: drive?
4: Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive
6: you home? Honey, please, I'll do
3: the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive.
2: Just drive, Just
5: drive baby.
0: All right, let's talk ETFs. This is just an extraordinary story that just keeps on going. The growth in this space is something uh, you know I haven't seen very frequently in my 30-year career. Uh, let's get an update. We can do that with Ed Rosenberg. He's head of exchange-traded funds uh, at American Century Investments. These guys are big, $210 billion under management. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. Ed, thanks so much for joining us here. I always love to start talking about ETFs to get the latest on Fund flows into ETF. Did the pandemic twenty twenty year? Did that kind of put any kind of dis- did that disrupt the fund flow story that we've seen in ETFs? So thank you for having me. And uh, no, it really didn't. I mean twenty this
6: year twenty twenty has been an amazing and interesting year all around. And as most people want to put it to bed, but in the ETF industry, flows are near record highs. I mean two thousand seventeen was the Record year um, for 476 billion in flows, and we're right there before we get to year end. We're approaching; uh, we might even be passing that. The last numbers I pulled were right before Christmas, and we we're at 458. I've seen wow. some things that say we're getting closer to about 500 billion in flows for a record year. So, ETFs have not been affected. What has been affected was where the money's going, which has changed several times throughout the year. But overall, the money just keeps going into ETFs.
0: All right. And give us the reasons why, for those of us that aren't, that grew up in the mutual fund world and uh, would have to go see American Century, the the fund managers there and the fund managers uh, at Fidelity when I was a sell-side analyst. Tell us about the relative merits of an ETF versus, say, a mutual fund.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And remember, I grew up on the mutual fund side as well back in the day. So, um, I mean, if you think of what an ETF offers, right, the first and the biggest thing is flexibility, so, in, you know, on, when you looked at those days in March where the markets were going down or maybe they were bouncing around, with an ETF, you can choose your time of day. You can't do that with a mutual fund. It's always going to be the 4 o'clock close, no matter what time you call it in. So that's one aspect. The other aspect with ETFs is there's, there's the potential to be much more tax efficient. While I think, and I don't have the numbers exactly for mutual funds and how many pay capital gains, let's say it's about 60% of all equity Mutual funds pay a capital gain, whereas if you look at ETFs, the number's below 10%. And so ETFs are more tax-efficient in the long term for investors. And then the other thing that's historically been there is ETFs tend to be a little bit more price-sensitive, so they tend to be a little cheaper in times. You'll see some of the newer ETFs that are coming out, especially the active ones, on par if there's mutual fund counterparts, but even some of those are a few basis points cheaper. So there can be a cost savings with ETFs as well. And I think those three points have led ETFs just to become, um, within the last couple of years, more favored as a structure and a wrapper for people because it creates flexibility that they just didn't have before.
0: Ed, are these primarily uh, retail-oriented? Is this a retail-oriented product uh, versus institutions uh, buying into this? Not at
6: all. I mean, I okay. think it, depending on the product type you look at, You know, I think a lot of the institutions have gravitated towards ETFs and the basic indexes, because it's something, you know, whether you're a pension or whether, you know, you're any other type of institution, you manage towards a benchmark. And if you can find an ETF relatively cheaply that is tied to that benchmark, why wouldn't you use it? Right.
0: What types of, well, first of all, how many
6: ETFs are there out there, roughly? There's, so I'm going to give you a rough estimate. There's around 2,500 ETFs in the U.S. today. Um, and I know that number seems big, but if you compare it to the number of mutual funds, uh, you're talking about 8,600 mutual okay. funds. So it's still yeah. much smaller.
0: And it, it, what are some of the types of ETFs that are being launched these days? Presumably all this uh, fresh capital coming into the sector, uh, I'm guessing just that provides incentives for you know different types of ETFs to be created. Yeah, it
6: does. 2020 has been the most, and look, interesting year in ETFs. And I've been in ETFs for the last 15 years. Um, and what makes it so interesting is we saw this was the first time that active launches, active ETFs, outpaced index ETFs. If you think of what ETFs have been known for, they've always been known as index products. Yep. And that tide has shifted dramatically in 2020. The other thing that we saw this year was the advent of the first what we call semi-transparent Um, I know some of your colleagues at Bloomberg call them ANTS, Active Non-Transparent ETFs. And they they were passed by the SEC in late 2019, and they launched in 2020. And there's been five different types of those that launched this year where they don't disclose the holdings every day. And those ETFs alone are pushing about – so far, have pushed and brought in about $700 million year-to-date. And we launched the first one uh, back in late March. So they haven't been around that long, and they've already attracted that much money.
0: And what's the relative attractiveness of that type of structure?
6: So in the ETF landscape, there wasn't these types of products. And a lot of the products that have launched and using ours, for example, so I'm just going to give an example of focus dynamic growth, which is out there. It's a very concentrated portfolio, call it 25 to 40 to 50 holdings. That type of product really didn't exist in the landscape. There were a few But now, you'll see active managers who want to launch something that is more concentrated, that puts forward a more alpha-generating potential, and the ETF landscape didn't have that before. Out of those 2,500 products, maybe only a few did that, and you're going to see a lot more offerings from a lot of the bigger firms doing this as we go forward, especially into 2021.
0: So, any themes you have for 2021 as it relates to the ETF sector?
6: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So just so you know, the last three months, well, everyone knows 2020 was like a year of growth until the last three months, and everyone decided to invest right. in value and make that switch. And so, and I've heard that on your, your radio show yep. before. And so now I think what you're going to see is people looking for places where they didn't necessarily think about it before. One, we may have new tax plans coming in, right, depending on what yep. happens January 5th. That may cause people to use ETFs even more because they need to be more tax advantageous in the past. But I really think you're going to see investors start looking to add alpha to their portfolio, especially if 2021 is, as most people are thinking, sort of a calmer, flatter market Hopefully, (laughs) as we go forward. (laughs) Well, let's hope calmer, but flatter is never good. We like the rise, but realistically, that's what they're looking for. And I think you're going to look for places where you can add alpha. Potentially, and looking for these active portfolios, I think you're going to see more and more of that as time goes on.
0: Hey, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on the ETF business. Fascinating. Ed Rosenberg, head of exchange-traded funds at American Century on the phone from Chicago talking about the ETFs. It might be maybe on track for a record inflow year yet again for ETFs. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.